Well, good morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49 will be in chapters 49 and 50 today. I want to thank you if you helped participate in the music or our sound team, the AV guys. Thank you, Miss Aaliyah, for singing Sovereign Over Us, which fit perfectly with our prayer time. God is sovereign. He's not forgotten us. His plan is still to prosper us. A while ago, we covered Isaiah 42, and there we saw what are the first of four, what are called the servant songs. There are four servant songs in Isaiah. The first is in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. The last is goes over chapters 52 and 53. It's Isaiah 52, 12 through 53, 12. The second and third servant songs are here in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 50. And from this point on, from chapters 49 to 57, we'll be focusing on the servant, the coming servant, the Messiah. So what do we learn in these servant songs? First, if you look at chapter 49, 1 through 13, we see the second servant song. We see who the servant is. We see who is the servant. Look at 49, verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Who is the servant? Well, it says here, Israel. But what's meant here is not Israel the person. Remember Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. It's not the person. It's also not the nation. What? So it's not the person, Israel. And it's not the nation, but it is the Messiah. Like, how do we... Are you sure? Yeah, pretty sure. So if you look down at verse number 5, you see we're going to have a discrepancy here because something's going to have to change, right? If he's the servant, then what's the nation? Well, there's still Israel. And we'll get to that in a second. Look at verse number 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from my womb to be his servant. This is Israel from verse 3. Why has God formed this servant? To bring Jacob back to him. And that the Israel nation, the nation, might be gathered to him. So he's going to have Israel save Israel in that sense. The servant, the Messiah, is going to save the nation. He says, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The servant Israel brings back the nation Israel. The coming servant is, going to, is called Israel. Why? Because he is what Israel was not. He is what Israel should have been, but could not be. He's the true son of God. He's the true servant of God. He's the true witness for God. One author noted the prophetic voice in verses 1 through 3, Yahweh or Jehovah has called me, has not only been designated as a servant, but he has been designated as Israel. In place of the corporate nation Israel, which up to this point has always borne the title my servant, a single figure now, the servant, carries this title and even the office. And we see this in the New Testament. That Jesus is what Israel should have been. He's the true son of God. He's the one that did obey. We see that in a text like Matthew chapter 4. Where Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And he faces the same exact temptations, in a sense, that Israel did when they left Egypt. In Matthew chapter 4, you notice that Jesus quotes every time from the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 6 through 11, where Moses in Deuteronomy 6 through 11, which starts off Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Teach your children in the way that they should go. By the way, don't make the same boneheaded mistakes. 
because when you did this and you forsook the Lord for bread and you did not realize that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every one of Jesus' responses in the temptation comes from the warnings of Moses to people of Israel where they failed. You failed here, and you failed here, and you failed here, and Jesus comes up, Satan tempts them, and he's like, no, I won there, I won there, and I won there. I am what they should have been, but they could not be because they're fallen man. He is Israel, and he is what they should have been. He is their deliverer. He is the servant of the Lord. Next, we see the descriptions of the servant in chapter 49, 1 through 7. Let's just walk through this text, which is fantastic. We're going to try to take out a few things. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. From the womb, as I already told us in chapter 7, this will be a virgin womb. Verse number 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He's, he had me as a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. The words of the coming servant are eloquent and powerful, but it's not his time yet. Like an arrow, in, it's, it's put away. It's, it's not his time yet. It's not here yet. Verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He is what Israel should have been. He will glorify his father. Next in verse 4, but I said, here's the servant speaking. I've, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vain, yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. You're like, well, what's going on? Because if Jesus is the servant, he's the Messiah, he didn't fail. But it appears at times in Jesus' ministry, doesn't it seem like he does fail? When he's on the cross and people are mocking him, if you are the Messiah, come off the cross. The nation that he came to save, what did they do? Crucified him. Well, that didn't work well. Was that the plan? Was that the plan? Is this the plan? That can't be the plan. And yet he says, but my recompense is with my God. The NIV translates this way, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. It looks like it's an abysmal failure, but in the end, it's actually good fruit is com coming from this. The results are going to be fantastic, and the reward will come from his father. Verse number five, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant. Again, a nod to the virgin birth. To bring Jacob back to him, and Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has been my strength. What did the father say? Because he says, I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord. What did the father say when he was baptized in Matthew chapter three, right before he goes into the temptation, into the one of the four temptations? What did the father say when Jesus was being baptized in Matthew 3, 17? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How he pleases me. Isaiah's like, I told you. <laughs> 700 years before he came, this is going to happen. He will save Israel. He will please the father, and he will also become redemption for the nations as well. It's not just for Israel, but it's for all. Verse 6, he says, is it too light a thing? that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of J Jacob and to bring back to preserve Israel? Let's expand the borders here. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The 
servant will be a light unto the Gentiles. This is quoted back in Isaiah 42, 6. It's also quoted forward in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's a light unto the nations. Now listen to these descriptions in verse number 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. What's he say about this servant? I mean, he's, he's despised, he's abhorred. He's the servant? Kings shall see this servant and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The despised servant is the Redeemer. He's the Holy One. Kings, rulers, they're going to fall before him because he is, at the end of, as the end of the verse says, he's faithful and he always will be. But the beginning is it's going to look odd because he, he's despised, he, he's abhorred. He, he's, he's a servant. It's like he... What's he going to do? Wash feet? He's going to come and people are going to reject him? Yes. They will. But one day then they will fall because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now we see the result of a servant in chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you, in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion a desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the way and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my mountains a road. My highway shall be raised up. People, behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Verse 8, God shows favor by answering, helping, and keeping. He gives the servant as a covenant to the people. We saw this already in Isaiah chapter 42, verse number 6. When the servant, when the reign of the servant begins, hunger and thirst is no more. Marquis Laughlin was here quoting the book of Revelation. He, he quoted this passage from Isaiah in Revelation 7, verses 16 and 17. There the Savior, because in Revelation 7, 16 and 17, quotes here Isaiah 49, 10. There our Savior, in Re Revelation 7, wipes away the tears from our eyes. There's neither hunger nor thirst. Just in that sweet moment where he takes the, all that away. This is the coming reign. This is the result of the servant's ministry. So how should God's people respond? And here we have the last verse, the last part of the second servant song. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. He will have compassion on the afflicted. Here you have creation is called to rejoice over what God is doing for sinful man. If creation's called to exalt, what's, you know, if mountains are called to rejoice, what's your job? You're the one being redeemed. They're just blown away. How 
spoke of such arrant, foolish people become his? How can this sinful lot become holy? And they watch what God does, and the mountains shake, and they tremble, going, praise God. They sing. They, that's the shout. They burst forth with a ringing cry. That's what it literally means. Burst forth with a ringing cry. Does that describe how you worship Jehovah today? You know, sometimes growing up, with my background, sometimes growing up, I thought that the best way to worship was to be a statue and to be about just middle ground. Keep it real subtle because we're in church. This is a reverent place. And we're worshiping a holy God. Are all those things true? Everything except we're in a church, right? We are the church. This is a building, okay? You can do little things. We are the, here's the church, here's the people, no. Um, this is a building. But I thought if I do this and just kind of keep it mid-tone, because you're not trying to draw attention to yourself, you're trying to draw attention to God, you're just trying to, can you imagine if heaven were like that? How disappointing would that be? Because you read what the Bible tells us to do and rejoicing and going, it's telling us finally in heaven we get to do that. And, and we're not going to do it. We're still going to stand like this. And I already keep our voice in the middle. Keep status quo. I don't want anybody else to hear me. Just keep it right here. Christian, don't wait until you see Jesus face to face to worship like you should have all along. Because you're afraid of, of what? What are you afraid of? Someone, someone sees that you love your Lord? Is that a scary thought? Somebody hears that you're out of tune? Is that a scary thought? Are you singing for them? Is that who you're worshiping? If you came here with that fear of man, get a bigger view of your God. Join me, as I've asked you to do before, of trying to unshackle from the past of rigidity and voicelessness. The Psalms tell us, clap your hands, clap your hands, rejoice, give praise to God. If you want to lift your hands, you want to fall on the floor, give him the praise he's due. Because creation looks at what God has done, and they're going, what an awesome God. Look what he's doing. These people are idiots. And he takes them, and he transforms them, and he makes them his own. What an awesome God. They rejoice. They burst forth with a ringing cry. How should Israel respond to this? Israel, the nation. They're going to ask a couple questions. They're going to ask a couple questions. They're going to see Israel's questions, and then God's going to respond to their questions. Look at Isaiah 49, 14. We see a question and then a response. Question number one, and then the first response. Verse 14. But Zion, or Israel, the nation, says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. <laughs> You're like, the mountains are ringing forth in praise over what God has done for you, and you feel like, oh man, God's forgotten us again. Like, what are, what are you talking about? Has God forgotten you? And as amazing as we believe God to be, as awesome as what we're going to come and celebrate, Right On Resurrection Sunday, we're going to celebrate the Lord rising from the dead, which we're supposed to do the other 51 Sundays of the year. But we're celebrating what God has done. Yet someone here 
maybe you, maybe me on that day, will go through the turmoil that we just prayed for people, and you'll wonder, because of the circumstances of life, has he forgotten me? It feels like he's forgotten me. Is he here? Does he know? Does he see? Because it's not lining up in my view. I mean, this should not all be coming on me at the same time. I know he says it's it's not going to give us more than we can handle. It feels like it's more than I can handle. It's not more than you can handle with him. But has he forgotten you? How does God respond? Look at verse 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Moms? Can you? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Is it possible that a mama could forget what it's like to hold a baby on her chest? Even if that were possible, what does God say? Though a sinful woman can love a child like this, a sinful woman, right, is not going to forget who her child is. Even if a sinful woman could, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, this is speaking of the walls of Jerusalem, your city, the city of Zion, are continually before me. I can't forget you. I can't. Even though an erring woman might which that even seems impossible. Like when I ask that question, Mama, can you forget the first time you held your child? Every mother's like, Mm-mm. right? You, that seems impossible to you. And yet you're a sinner who still makes mistakes. But if you can't see that being a possibility, what are the odds that a good, holy, gracious God could forget those whose names are written on his hands? They're right here. can't forget you I can't forget you you see Jesus you see him face to face and he holds up his hands and you're not going to see your your name written there are you but a hole I didn't forget you (laughs) think I forget you I did this for you did this for you. I can't forget you. If you can understand that illustration, you understand that the love of God for his own will never be broken. He will never forget his own. Then the servant tells his children, behold, I've again, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands, your walls before me. God will redeem his people. He will not forget them. He will restore the city of God. Verses 19 through 22 We see the city expanding as God invites the nations to come in and dwell there. He does this so at the end of verse 23, his people will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. All right, we got another question. Okay, here we go. Question number two, verse 24. Can the prey, speaking of the exiles, be taken from the mighty? Can the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Can God really deliver us from Babylon? 
Babylonian exile, just like Assyrian exile, when they pulled you out of the land, they moved you to different parts of another nation, another place, hoping that you would intermarry, intermingle. That way there would be no differentiation between nations. And so that way you were always were just going to be an Assyrian then from that time forth. That same kind of thing happens here in our country. Right, when people were coming in droves from other nations to here and intermarrying, and now what do you call yourselves? I'm an American. We're just one group. That same idea was the idea of the Assyrian Empire. The same idea of the Babylonian Empire was just make just one people, and they're always going to be ours, and then they'll be thankful to be in our kingdom, even though we overthrew them a little bit ago. So how is it possible they're going to bring them back? Because... Is there even going to be a distinct people of Israel? They're, 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 they're going to intermarry, get wiped out. It was impossible. How does God respond to this? Can you really bring us back from the mighty? Verse 25, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. <laughs> and the prey of the tyrant rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. Beginning of chapter 50, God asked in verse 1 through 2, Thus says the Lord, Where is the mother's certificate of divorce with which I have sent her away? Or which of my creditors is to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? It was your sin that sent you away. And if I sent you away, I can bring you back. But let me ask you a question here, verse number 2. When I came, when I called, come, why didn't nobody come? When I asked you to obey, why was there no one to hear and listen? Why was there no one to shema, hear and obey? Then he asked, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. Can you think of a time where God could have possibly, I don't know, parted the waters? Can you think of a time like that? Where perhaps maybe his people were captive and, I don't know, help, help them escape? Do you remember that time when God brought them out of captivity in Egypt through dry land into freedom and safety? And the people are wondering, can God really get us out of Babylon does he have the power to redeem Israel from the Assyrian Empire? I, I've already done that. Is my hand shortened that I, I can't redeem? Telling me I can't do this again? God did not forget his people. He did not divorce them. He had not forgotten them. They had forgotten him. They had refused to come back to him. And God reminds them, listen, I am yours, you are mine, and my people do not question what I can do, for I am God, and there is no other. This truth leads to the third servant song, which we see in chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. We'll see descriptions of the servant again. Look at 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens my, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The servant will be a great teacher, taught by the Father. What did Jesus say about his own teaching ministry? Listen to this from John 12, 49. 
For I have not spoken of my own authority, Jesus said, but the Father who has sent me himself has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is saying what the Father told him to say. That's what Isaiah said he would do here in verse number 4. He was taught by God, and his words, as verse 4, they sustain the weary. Are you weary right now? And embrace that truth that Mr. Lee is saying about, that God is sovereign over us, that he's not forgotten you, and his word will sustain you. Verse number 5, the Lord God has opened my ears. This is a servant speaking again. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He, he did not do what Israel did. As soon as they got out of exile, what did they do? I mean, as soon as they got out of, out of Egypt, what did they do? They crossed on dry ground. They praised the Lord. And what's one of the first things they do? Complain. Murmur, complain. Build another God. Complain about the food. Like you're free. You know, I want better food. Sick of him. Oh, that we'd been left in Egypt. This is not, that's not what Israel should have done. But the true Israel, Jesus, the Lord God has opened his ears. I'm not rebellious. I won't turn my back on the Father. He's obedient. We have one here who hears and obeys. We have one who fills the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I hear and I obey. He will not turn backwards. Next, we see that though the, though the servant is obedient, he will have to suffer much. We'll get to more of this as time moves on, but you can see this here in verse number 6. And again, if this is your first time here, first time in a long time, this was written, this book, Isaiah, was written 700 years before Jesus came. And he's checking off every one of these boxes as fulfilled prophecy. And we're going to hear more of this here in verse number 6. I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my back to those who strike. Matthew 27, 26 says, Then he released him and Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. They scourged him, they whipped him, but notice they did it with his permission. I gave them my back. I gave my back to those who strike. He gives them. What did Jesus say about even his own life in John 10? No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. Discharge every piece of my father. The people of Israel don't have power over me. They're not the ones that are going to put me on the cross. I lay down my life. I give my back to those who strike me. He gave his body, gave his life willingly. They didn't just scourge his back. Keep reading verse 6. My cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. As they yank out his beard, they slap him in the face. They spit in the face of the Messiah. I didn't hide my face from him. Matthew 26, 67, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, scourged, beaten, spit upon, beard pulled out. For you. For those whose names are written on his hand. 
Did God forget you? Seven, but the Lord. So you wonder how did how did how did God how did Jesus do it? I know He's God, but how did He do it? How can the Sovereign of all reduce Himself to that? I'm not worthy. I'm not. But verse seven says, "But the Lord God helps me; the Father will help me." Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The Father will help me. So I will not be futurist. When Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, he's setting his face like a flint. This is my path. But Peter says, no, 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 Lord, that's not, no, no, no. This is my path. I will die. I'll be beaten. I'll be crucified. This is my path. But my Father will help me. You understand that struggle in the garden when he says, Lord, if it's possible to pass this cup, let me pass it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is my path. Stay with me, Father. It's one of the most grievous things. My dad always talked about when we talked about the resurrection and the death of Jesus was the fact that a father had to at one point turn his back on him because he became the sin of the world. And for a moment, his father could not be with him. Because of you. Because of me. Because of the sin we don't want our neighbors and friends to know about. One thing he cherished so much, he had to give up. This is my path. I have not forgotten you. Look at my hands. Your name is written there. He says in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of those who wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. The Father will help him. His accusers will fall by the wayside as they try to prove his guilt. The, sil- the servant has no guilt, for he is the savior of the guilty. So how should we respond to a servant like this? We see in verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord, and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, and by the torches that you have kindled, you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. What's going on there in verse number 11? You see in verse 10, he says, those that are in darkness and have no light are supposed to trust what? They're supposed to trust the light of the world. We learn in Matthew 4, 16, 
So Jesus is baptized, right? The father says, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. He goes into the wilderness. He faces some of the same temptations that Israel faced. He answers with the same exact text Moses told him they should have said back in Deuteronomy 6 through 11. He is the son that should have been. His ministry starts, and in chapter 4, verse 16 of Matthew, he says, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Because without him, guess what they have? No light. He is the light of the world. He is the light unto the nations. And so if you walk in darkness, trust my light. Do not go the opposite way where you make your own light. You try to guide yourself by your own light because it will only end in torment. You cannot save yourself. The blind cannot lead the blind. You need somebody else. You need a savior. Drowning people don't rescue each other. They drown. You need a savior. Trust the light of the world. Trust the one who came for you. In verse 11, again, that warning, do not rely on yourself. One writer said of this, here is the call to the unconverted, those that don't know Jesus, to believe and be saved. Along with the warning that those who try to escape moral spiritual darkness by lighting their own fire, man-made religion or works, righteousness, were to end up in eternal torment. Friend, you're here, but if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, do not believe that you can get there by something you do. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, it's not a works, because God doesn't want you to boast when you see him face to face and look what I did. That's not look what I did. It's look what God did. Look what Jesus did. That's where salvation comes. That's why Jesus said, I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. And that's why we beg you, turn, turn. That's why, so what does all this mean for us today? First off, friend, if you're here, have you placed your faith in Jesus. Turn. I don't care if you've been in church your entire life. The question's still the same. Have you done it? I don't care how many times you've been to church. I don't care if you've read your Bible 55 times. Is he your Savior? Have you accepted the light of the world? What did God tell the Israelites in 49.6? I will make you as a light, speaking to servant from the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Friend, I beg you, turn. Whosoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him today. Entrust your life to him. We hope that you'll do that. If you have questions, see myself, see a Christian friend that you came with. We'd love to talk to you about how you can do that. If you're here and you, you claim to have received Christ as Lord, let me ask you a few questions. Are you weary? Are you weary? 367 days of two weeks to flatten the curve. It gets wearisome. It gets wearisome to look at brothers and sisters in Christ that are watching their mom or dad die and they can't take it. It gets wearisome to see brothers and sisters in Christ that are watching their loved one go through treatment and they can't be with them, have surgeries and they can't be with them. 
wearisome to not have a first Sunday month. Wearisome to not be able to give a hug. Wearisome. Are you weary? Do you feel that maybe perhaps God has forgotten you? As if things that are happening now are outside of his control. What did 54, 50, chapter 50, verse 4 tell us? The servant son of God, who knows how to sustain those who are weary with a word. What word would Jesus give you today? Friend, are you weary? Read his word. It will sustain. It will sustain. Read it and read it and read it again. Rest in the word of God. Read the word of God and let his word sustain your soul. In 49.6, we see that Jesus the Messiah is a light unto the nations. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus told his disciples, right? Who's the light of the world? Jesus or the disciples? Jesus. That's a great Sunday school answer. And you're right. Listen to Jesus' discussion to the disciples, though, in Matthew chapter 4. You are the light of the world. Wait, what? Sorry, he's the light. People walking in darkness have seen great. Is he the light of the world? What's the answer? Yes. Who lives in you? Who is the world supposed to see? Why do they call you Christian? What does that mean? It means little Christ. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? Should I let my light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Are you the light of the world God wants you to be? To whom is your light helping? People are walking around and groping in darkness and you are the light of the world. Why are you covering it? Why are you hiding it as if you're afraid of how they're going to respond to you? You are the light of the world. People should see you and give glory to your Father who is in heaven if you are the light God wants you to be. He is the light of the world. disciples when I came? What's your job? Make disciples till I come again. But Jesus, we're not the light. No, you're not. I am, but I'll be in you. I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You, 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 I am the light of the world. Next, are you actively trusting in God. In chapter 50, verse 10, we are told to trust in the name of the Lord because of who our great servant is, who the great Messiah is, 
who our Savior is, Jesus, the true Israel, the true Son, the true Redeemer. Because of all that, chapter 50, verse 10 says, trust in the name of the Lord. Are you trusting in God? Lastly, are you praising God like you should? He is mighty to save. He's our Redeemer. He's the one who yet became despised. He was abhorred. He was whipped, his beard torn out, his face whipped, spat upon. And the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the rocks looked at what the Creator, their Creator, did for sinful man. And they shout out. They ring forth, they burst forth with praise. What a mighty God we have. What's your response, Christian? How should you respond to such great a salvation? Let's bow for a word of prayer. As we do, let's take just 30 seconds here. Let's quiet our hearts. I know we're running a little long. We have some time in prayer, but I think it's necessary. Quiet your heart. Lord, what would you have me do? Let's take 30 seconds. I'll pray. Then we'll sing one last song. Father, we thank you for your son, your suffering servant, who though despised and abhorred, whipped, beaten, spat upon, and at times looking like a failure, is the true son. He is the light of the world. He conquered sin, death, and hell. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, it is your word and your spirit that change hearts, and so use those now to change our hearts. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name.